Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome, Podcastville. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is returning for his second interview with me, Matt Terman. How are you doing this morning, Matt? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you, man? Good. It's nice to catch up with you. Spent a good few minutes at Coquette Bakery over there in Winslow Mall and then in here catching up. That's right. Great minds think alike. Always good to see you over there, man. Yeah. Shout out to Jerry at Coquette. You make the best coffee on the island and that say tomato is my favorite pastry. It's got goat cheese and herb and heirloom tomatoes. It's a little out of season right now, so he's he won't just use store bought tomatoes. So it's killing me because that's my Friday go to spot. No, Jerry is solid. I, I've got to say, I, I prefer just going there and grabbing one of his uh, baguettes. Man, probably the best in town. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. the coffee beats that 
crap, you were trying to kill me with a Hitchcock with the cashew milk. That was, that was the worst cup of coffee I ever had. And I like Hitchcock's coffee, but then you were like, oh, you got to try the cashew milk. And Well, I'll tell you, the one we want to try next is, uh, is oat milk. And for those of us that have lactose issues, you know, you've got you've to branch out and try these other non-dairy alternatives. But uh, sorry, the cashew milk didn't go down quite well. No. But for pure black coffee, you're right, Jerry makes the best on the island. Good stuff, good stuff. So, how you been, man? Well, I'm doing really well, buddy. Thank you for uh, for having me on. It's, uh, I think the the last time I was on, I was actually running for council, and you were trying to figure out this whole podcast thing. So, yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out, you and just... I, I'm still trying to figure out how to do this whole council thing. So, we're both in the same place. <laughs> so, how, yeah, October 2017, I think, was when we started this and had our first conversation, and that was right at the start of uh, the Me Too movement. It was. That's, That's right. kind of crazy. That's and right. another thing that I was I was just thinking about today that we were talking about that day was Rick Pitino and how he was going to take that big shoe contract money and he was probably going to jail and had some mistresses on the side yeah. or whatever. And yeah. We don't hear anything about him anymore. No, it's it's interesting how a lot of these national conversations and the stories that fall off of them uh, tend to end up going by the wayside in the end. Um but Me Too has certainly endured for the for the better, one could say, right? Yeah. yeah. But the news cycle is so quick and so demanding now, and there's so many people inputting it into the, the system that it has no shelf life. You know, yeah. Something could be completely dramatic one day and then off the radar the next quite, quite quickly. It, it is. It's crazy. And I, I think it probably works both ways, right? There are probably stories out there that don't deserve the shelf life that they, that they have. And it'd be nice to see more of them probably fall off the shelf and never get back on. But on the flip side of that, there are, are real genuine um, stories of deep implication for you know people around the world or people here on our island that don't get nearly enough attention. Um, I think one of the not to not to butter you up too much, Tim, but I, I do think a great deal of you and what you provide here with the podcast. I think more long form podcasts like this that can talk about issues in depth that go beyond the surface level are are really important, especially when we've got a lack of of local news coverage on uh, what goes on on the island in Kitsap County. Yeah, are you familiar with the whole BITV fiasco with City Council before you got here? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. I'm. I'm in depth on the issue, but I know there was a a fiasco for sure. Yeah, that it was crazy too. There was some guy talking about the the crime blotter, and he did it very humorously. But it was on uh, its own station or whatever, so it just looped, and they had about eight minutes of content, and that just looped all day long, and it was nuts. Wow. You see this guy like uh, Cal Worthington, Suzuki car salesman type. Wow. Over and over and over. Hey, let's start right there. What What's going on with that property? With Suzuki? No, no. There, where the BITV was by Strawberry Park. Um, isn't that um, city property? The small building in the in the woods there just to the right of? Jeez, you know what? I, I'm not sure. I thought I I thought that was Park's property. I uh, might be. I'd have to go back and look at the, uh, the city surplus list to see if that's on there. Um, so not sure about that one. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Suzuki. Then. Hey, there, I can speak about Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah. So uh, for those that don't know, the Suzuki property off of New Brooklyn, not far from where we're at right here at the uh, the barn, um, the city has designated that property, which it um, 
the citizens passed through an initiative um, or a levy rather to uh, purchase property back in 2000 or 2001. Originally, it was supposed to be for the police station, um, but that never never transpired. Uh, but a previous council designated that property as a potential affordable housing uh, site, and our council over the past year we have worked um, to kind of put the structure around what that could mean. So last year we passed a resolution outlining our goals for the property, which are 100% affordable in perpetuity. So any development on that property will be uh, affordable, and what that means is it's going to be affordable for a range of folks. So we use something called an area median income. Um, so we look at 30% of the area median income, which could be anyone from uh, you know working at uh, working at Safeway or working in shops on the island to EMTs and firefighters, all the way up to teachers that make a very good salary on the island, but who still find um, the uh, property and living expenses here to be to be quite high. So it covers a range of incomes. Uh, another key consideration that we included was ensuring that most of the property remained undeveloped. So there's about 14.8 acres, and uh, if this goes forward, we'd only develop on about 4.8 of those acres. And would that be den- densely developed, like our apartment complex, townhouses, something like that? Right. So that's one of the key considerations we're now talking about. So it's, it's gotten to the point now where I think most of the council, or majority of the council says, you know what? We do want to move forward with this. We have um, Olympic Property Group uh, is our consultant on this, and they've gone out and done the uh, looking at the site development, getting all the studies underway, all the permitting. So all that's moving along right now, uh, which is you need to do that for any property you're developing. Uh, but now the next step uh, that we decided on uh, the council meeting last Tuesday was to engage uh, in a financial feasibility study. So understanding how we finance this project through federal tax credits through um, and through other means. Uh, from that, we'll then know, Tim, how many units we can develop and in what way. So it's zoned right now currently for 60 units um, under our um, um, density uh, our density laws. Um, we could probably go up to 90. I don't think there's much appetite on the council and the community for 90 units on that property. Uh, but I, I'll say personally that I, I'd like to see something between you know, 50, 60 units, 70 units, if we can pencil them out. Um, this is really, we have a, a unique opportunity to, um, to put a dent in uh, the affordable housing uh, crisis that we have right now. And it would, take, it would take a sizable amount of other development on the island to achieve what we could achieve with the Suzuki property. Um, but there's plenty of time for public input. Nothing is written in stone. We want to hear from the public on what they think. Um, there are very real issues around transportation, uh, around traffic in the area, and we certainly want to be respectful to the uh, surrounding neighborhoods. But you know, when I ran and when many of us ran for council, affordable housing was top on our list, I think, as you remember. And, and I'm real happy to see that we've moved along this far with Suzuki. I, I noticed some of the trees have been tagged recently. What's what the what significance does that have? Yeah, as, as part of the study, they have to look at um, the trees on the border of the property there, and you know, trees are going to have to come down um, if we develop. And yeah, it's not a really healthy forest anyway. No, you know what? It, and it's the, the the trees that you see tagged from the road um, are those that are um, are fairly unhealthy, and it will have to that will have to come down. Um, but there is, you know, there is thick forest as you get further in there. There's a small man-made pond, uh, and there's other um, ecological uh, functions that we obviously want to preserve. And 
and ensure um, aren't disturbed. Um, but that's why you see the tags on the trees. Is that you know there there will be some trees that come down, and there will be. Um, you know, some consequences of that. But we've, this is a struggle, you know, that I found in my first year of council is that balance between uh, the environment and the human element, right? And I, I think I've, I've said it probably a dozen times in the past couple of weeks on uh, uh, at council meetings is that I think our island probably gets a strong A for um, protection and preservation uh, of our environment. And I think we do a lot and we hear a lot from citizens on that, which is great. I think we get a, you know, a struggling student C on the human services and on the human development side. Uh, even though, as a city, we do spend, you know, about seven hundred thousand um, every, uh, you know, uh, every other year on um, donate on um, grants to not for profits to, you know, to help the human services side. But I feel like on affordable housing and other, we we don't do as well. Island Center, is that? Um, zone for affordable housing or development or what's going on there by the gas station? Yeah, yeah. So the Island Center is uh, it's designated one of our neighborhood service centers. So Linwood, Rolling Bay, um, those are our service centers, right? And in our comprehensive plan, we talk about how we are going to um, look at the future of those areas. And again, nothing is written in stone. So we have an island center uh, sub-area committee right now uh, that Council uh, Member Blossom is leading up. Uh, there are nine or 11 citizen committee members uh, that are that comprise the, uh, the neighborhood or um, that are from the neighborhood that comprise that committee, and they're going to come back to council and they're going to tell us they're they've, they're going to do public outreach. They're going to come back and say these are the possibilities of things that we could do in Island Center in terms of um, you know multi use, um, some of which will be you know could have affordable housing. Um, looking at the the design and the nature of how Island Center could develop. But there are very real issues of, um, you know, of connection to sewer there. Uh, there are very real issues of uh, the environment and protecting, protecting some of the beautiful environment off of uh, Miller and Fletcher Bay uh, that exist off of that road. And you know, I, I think there's a natural instinct for folks when they drive through um, uh, the Island Center to, I think, just observe what they see from their car. And uh, you know, I think it's easy to say, "God, it's just a gas station and a and a small strip area, um, strip mall area." There's a lot more to Island Center uh, that I've come to appreciate, and I know others do too. So it's going to be a thoughtful and deliberate process. No density, no development is going to happen without um, robust public involvement. But it, but it is zoned for dense building, correct? Yeah, it, it is. It is zoned for that. I mean, it could it could have the same level of characteristics uh, that you see down in Linwood, right? And you see in Linwood Town Center, which is um, you know retail on the bottom floor with mm-hmm. uh, with housing on the top floor. And I think Linwood has turned into a destination in a, in and of itself. Um, you know, our family lives uh, down near Linwood, and uh, we go down there often. Um, you've seen a lot a lot of new. Uh, condo developments with the roost. There will be new restaurants going in, uh, and I think that's great for for Linwood. Um, that maybe that works there. Is that same type of development with the same characteristics going to be right for Island Center? Maybe not. And I and I think that's where we need the involvement of the sub area committee and to hear from others on that. Um, so we're we're still a year or two out from really figuring out what's going to happen. All right, and. Rolling Bay is there's sewer issues over there too by uh, Via Rosa and that that corner undeveloped area. By sewer issues, you mean 
Well, I know the the convenience store and the restaurant shut down for a while, and they were talking about septic and. Yeah, I'm I'm not too sure the the specifics on that. I I know that you know we <laughs> we love Via Rosa, I think as much as anyone, and I know that they were shut for a time last year. Um, I'm not sure what the what the cause of that was though, if that was specific to that site. Uh, but I, I think anywhere you look on the island where there's potential new development, um, you know, access to sewer. Um, uh, is going to be a key consideration. I mean, that that's why, just going back to Suzuki, um, you know, we can, at some expense, we can run a line underneath New Brooklyn and connect to uh, city sewer uh, from there. So uh, that's a key consideration in any any development, in Rolling Bay especially. Well, let's segue into some uh, wastewater issues. It seems to be a hot topic that people ask me about a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> there was a couple gentlemen that won a national award for um, the sewage treatment plant out there off what wing point was that the spot? I think so. Yeah. There's a, there's a cry about the aquifer situation here on the Island. And then there's the pumping of this wastewater and we've had some spills and stuff. Is there a possibility that we could do even more with the wastewater and perhaps recharge aquifers with the wastewater? Yeah. I mean, oh. Without without a terrible like terribly like deep degree of knowledge um, on that, I guess the the bottom line is we could always do more, right? But I think it's a matter of um, it's a matter of expense. Uh, so you know we could <laughs> we could make roads with less um, with more pervious surfaces too. I mean that, that's a um, a citizen came to us with the idea of any new roads or any new surfacing, we use um, materials to um, to ensure that the, they are uh, they're pervious. So it goes back into the uh, the aquifer instead of leaching off and running into the sound. That's a great idea, but it's a it's an expensive, weighty proposition. Um, there are there are actions that the city is going to take over the next uh, five years in our capital improvement plan, our CIP. Uh, we'll, we'll spend between uh, sewer upgrades to our infrastructure as well as wastewater about sixteen million in total in terms of upgrading pump houses and equipment that have been um, largely out of out of date, not out of compliance. They're just built in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and they need um, retrograde and and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, refitting. So uh, there's a lot that we're going to do already. Could we do more? Absolutely. And I think you only need to. You only need to look at what's happening right now with the uh, the orca population in the sound, um, uh, you know, the salmon population that uh, that we as a Puget Sound community could do a heck of a lot more in the budget that we passed uh, in 2018 for the 2019 2020 budget. Um, we put in um, we put in a budget for. Uh, doing a uh, stormwater um, uh, consultant project that will tell us what we need to get to. I think what you're referring to, one of the listeners brought up to you that question of, you know, how can we, how can we become even more sustainable? How can we use, um, you know, that potential runoff and put it back into the aquifer? Reinvested into reinvested it. in absolutely, absolutely. But there's a lot that we're doing already, so I don't want to uh, dismiss that. But could we be doing more? Absolutely, we could always be doing more. Yeah, I get I get worried because Kitsap County has had numerous sewage spills over the years, and then I look at the Super PAC down at Creosote Park, and then the Halley Cove area there. There's the sewage treatment plant, mm-hmm. and then the ferries coming in and out, and the gas. We have a very progressive state 
at least on this side of the mountains. <laughs> Did you hear about them talking about making Washington two states? Oh yeah, that's that's. I've well, I've been here in Washington for seven years, and that's one of the first things I heard. Is really yeah. Is it Cascadia? Is that the is that the Some, yeah, yeah something something like, something like that? That'd be a shame. <laughs> we yeah, wouldn't want that. East and West Germany. Here. I I know right. Divided by the mountains. We have beautiful landscape, and we have some elected officials in Jay Inslee and Hilly Franz that are are strong, and Maria Cantwell, proponents of the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think our city council is is leaning that way as well in in taking care of this this island. What can we do to clean up that mess? That we're, I think our island and the people that use the ferry system here contribute drastically to the to polluting the waters of the salmon and the orcas, and yet we talk a lot about you know progressive ideas to save the salmon. And Inslee's got a billion dollar bill on that to save some orcas. Right. What What's our next step? You know what What can we do about that? And how dire is it? Well, I, I think it's just starting with that last bit. I think it's really dire. I think the the entire the entire state of our um, of our environment and our ecosystem, not just here but around the world, is in a dire dire state. Um, and, and again, this is where I go back to the fact that we're fortunate on Bainbridge that we do have citizens that are active and wanting to play a part uh, locally, which is which is critical. You know, we've got here in Kitsap County and on Bainbridge, we have, you know, many different sewer districts that are independently owned or owned by the county or owned by the city. So there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of overlap and disparate functioning um, sewer districts. So the the spill this past weekend uh, down on South Beach on the island, um, that actually came from Kitsap County Sewer District 7. And <laughs> what happened there was a, a pump malfunctioned. And their phone alert system was uh, was somehow turned off. And so no one received the alert that all of this sewage was spilling into the water. Moreover, um, a citizen alerted this to me that the city hadn't put anything out on it. And it turns out that we weren't on the distribution list for the city, for Sap County Sewer District 7, for the city to receive these alerts. And so, uh, you know, again, it's not the it's not the city's responsibility, but is it the city's responsibility to ensure that we're communicating um, on these issues um, to get as wide distribution and acknowledgement as possible? Absolutely. But I think it just goes to show that there there are these overlaps and that there are these jurisdictional uh, levels of confusion. So, you know, one thing I'd love to see that us work for us to work on as a city council is how we can improve um, at a base level, that baseline level of communication with Kitsap Health, with Kitsap PUD, and all these other uh, water and sewer districts to ensure that if this does happen again, that we're, uh, that we're on it. What can we do as a, as a Bainbridge Island community to further protect um, uh, our waters and the ecosystem uh, uh, that survives off of off of it um we need to a couple things so one of the bills i'll introduce this year is focused on uh reducing the number of plastics on our island um so we've been working with um local uh uh, shop owners here to include tnc zero waste bainbridge to put together a packaging uh ordinance that would phase out the use of um plastics in uh takeout and in packaging uh, from uh, from shops, uh, but the key there, 
And as much as I'd love to rush this for the council to to vote on and to implement it, but the key there is if we're doing if we're doing more composting and we're asking um, Bainbridge Disposal and North Mason Disposal to take on more, they need to be ready to take on more and be able to process it or send it out to other facilities. And right now they're not. So we're probably going to do more engagement and community outreach on this over the next year to educate the public on um, on what what can be recycled, what can be composted, and and how we go about doing that. Because there's a lot that we don't do already that other communities like Seattle or just over the border in Vancouver and in Victoria, what they do to, um, uh, to uh, increase uh, more of their recycling capacity. Have you uh, checked out – well, of course you have because it was presented at city council. But uh, the, the ferry – Ferry's new plan for next, what is it, 10, 20-year plan? Yep, yep. Um, I did not wade way through all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um, is are they using the best fuel possible, and are they minimizing fuel dumping um, and stuff like that? Is Are they doing a better job of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Washington State Ferries does a, a, a pretty exceptional job with, with what they have to work with. Um, their plan for the next, it's, it's, I think it's next 40 years. They presented a 40-year plan to us. And it's everything from, uh, you know, reducing the amount of waste that they have on their, in their galleys um, to uh, electrifying um, their fleet. Right, creating these these hybrid uh, these hybrid vessels, and I, I believe there's a substantial amount in the budget this year, uh, in the state budget, to begin that transition. Um, but here, <laughs> here's a nasty little fact. Here's two nasty little facts that I think everyone needs to kind of wrap their head around to get to the point to where we have a hybrid electric vessel fleet, um, and where we have to um, bring on new boats to meet demand, or bring on new boats because these older boats need to be phased out. There's about a $1.5 billion gap between projected funding and bonds um, to where Ooh. to where we get to that goal. And so where is that? And I, I might even be underestimating that amount. I'll double check on that. But there is a there is a sizable dollar gap in there. And I think this is not just for the Washington State Ferries. Um, you know, I think we're fortunate in Washington that we've got a very healthy state budget uh, and that we're doing a lot to tackle everything from the environment to education to, you know, early childhood learning. But but we're gonna have to get funds from somewhere, and and there's a there's a missing gap there to achieving what you're getting at, Tim, which is creating a sustainable um, uh, green uh, Washington State ferry fleet. Yeah, a model that we can all get behind. Yeah, ab- <clears throat> absolutely. Speaking about environment, still, we started talking a year or so ago about the coal and how we were shipping that in from Montana. Mm-hmm. to provide the energy. Yesterday, I heard that Arby's restaurant employs and pays more pe- more people than the coal mining industry. We would not ruin the earth to save Arby's. <laughs> but yet, we will ruin the earth to continue to burn fossil fuels. How can we, Bainbridge Island... Make a definite change away from that. I, I know energy's been a hot topic around here long before I started this podcast. It's cooled off a bit, but in my mind, that fossil fuels being imported for our energy here on our island, and what is it, eighty percent of our energy comes from fossil fuels? I think it's about seventy to eighty percent, yep. That's insane to me. 
It is. Stop the insanity. Yeah, I mean, the, the Arby's example, I think, is is tremendous, um, Tim. And I, I think you can make other comparable examples that we have. You know, We have more uh, seamstresses at work in the U.S. than we do in the entire coal industry. Um, unfortunately, I, I think... I think the coal, the coal industry, and the men and women that work in the coal industry, unfortunately, have been you know bandied about back and forth between the Democratic and Republican parties, you know, for the past twenty to thirty years, and have been used as political tools, which is counterproductive and you know misses the point, right? Because uh, there, there's two, and we spoke about this last time when I was uh, when I was on, and there's and there's two factors, right? It's it's getting ourselves off of coal, which I think we all want to do as soon as possible, and then figuring out the the workers that have been that have been working in the coal industry for all these years. What we do? Well, my idea is to retrain those workers in a different skill set. Absolutely. And they've done that in places like West Virginia and in Pennsylvania. But I think we also have to be realistic to the fact that, you know, a a gentleman at the age of 60 who's still working in the coal mines is not going to be retrained to be a uh, a coder, right? Or even a a, a gentleman in his 50s. I think we have to be realistic about what retraining means and and not to get too, you know, national on our local podcast. But I mean, I think this one of the one of the aspirational things that I like around the notion of this Green New Deal whatever the particulars happen to be in the end, the idea is that we as a nation recognize that we need to get off of coal, that we need uh, to move toward a, um, a carbon-free economy. Um, and just like FDR did in the New Deal back in the, uh, back in the 40s, right? it was a national mobilization effort that focused on energy, infrastructure, employment, and resources. And we have to think about that very much the same. When you look globally at what China and India are doing, China is you know, now 10 years ahead of us in terms of their green economy. Um, there's no reason for that except the fact that you know, we have a, a nation of, um, you know, we're in political paralysis. We don't get anything done. I think the idea behind um, a Green New Deal at the national state, and then to, back to your point, at the local level, what can we do locally to, do, to make this happen? So j- just a couple things. I know m- members of uh, the council, uh, council member Dietz, um, is real keen uh, to figure out how we can do more on the island uh, from a solar perspective and renewables. Um, we, can, we can do that. We can figure out how that's going to work. And that's going to have to be a mixture between private and public investment uh, to make that happen. Um, we have our renegotiation of the... Um, uh, of our uh, master agreement with uh, PSE coming up in uh, in the next few years, we'll probably start in 2020. We're probably late this year, even talking to the PSE about what a what the next 30 to 40 years look like, and that's an opportunity for us to um, to exert some pressure on PSE. What I'd like to do instead of Bainbridge Island meeting and sitting down with PSE is that we instead work with other municipalities that have their lease agreements ending with PSE, and we get together and we form a consortium and we figure out how we create leverage beyond just the 20, 25,000 citizens here. Um, and I, I think the argument that PSE is, you know, they're phasing out coal strip in Montana over the next, um, you know, 10 years, I think that's that's all well and good. Um, but to your point before, Tim, we need to figure out how we accelerate that process. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm I'm tired of it. I'm sick and tired of it. No doubt. Um, well, let's talk, continue to talk about the land here sure. and uh, the tree ordinance. Right. <laughs> Wasn't the tree that 
was in the middle of all this drama, saved this tree. Didn't that not get cut down? Did you mean did it get cut? Did yeah. it get cut down? In the end, it did. Yeah. 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 How did that all play out? How did that all play out? Uh, our previous city manager uh, alerted the council to the fact that this was occurring, um, and he put together uh, a draft ordinance. And um, I think the intent behind it was was solid. That uh, w- again, we get a lot of citizen um, input into uh, into our environment, into our land use. And one thing that we consistently hear is that our um, these larger um, more iconic trees are are going down across the island, and I the, the reaction the ordinance was a reaction to that. Now, I don't know what we're five months into this. Um, it, I voted against the last renewal of it in December purely because I I felt like that we had put in place enough um, um, enough regulations that would have prevented this. Uh, it got rewrote, correct? What, yeah, we wrote the yep yeah, we rewrote that. But so, it, so how's it read now? How does it read now? <laughs> uh, I, I probably couldn't uh, recite it line for line, um, but uh, no fact checking. Just no fact checking. Yeah, give me a little no. I, I think it reads much more reasonably now, and and I it, I, I think the where there was um, I think confusion and obfuscation before, not intentionally. I think it's it's much clearer to landowners now. It's more costly, unfortunately, and I think that's something else that we're as a council we're trying to address and and understand with the CAO and other. Uh, land use regulations is the the cost to uh, single family homeowners and um, smaller landowners. How we how we can address and mitigate some of that pain and that and with the tr- with renewal of the tree ordinance, that was my issue. Is that I felt like I felt like it was an unnecessary infliction of further further pain. Um, but I, I believe at the beginning or beginning of March, we'll have a report um, from um, a tree committee that we formed of arborists uh, that will come back and and help further clarify and strengthen that part of our our code would that committee have a forester as as well as an arborist uh, I do I do not believe that there is a forester uh, a part of a part of that I believe it's just um uh, arborist although I'm Olaf Ribeiro is uh, is on that and I'm not sure if he if his qualifications count as being a forester was what's the difference between the two I'm not um, I think a forester is looking more broadly at the like the broader forest ecosystem and the the art. <laughs> I was going to make a forest through the trees uh, joke there, Tim, but I think that would have gone down too well. Um, forester is looking at the broader ecosystem um, of a of a woodland area where an arborist is, I believe, maybe more concerned about the um, the health and the specificity of um, individual trees and vegetation. I could have gotten that wrong. No, it's all right. No fact-checking, right? Yeah, and we're all fallible, and that's what makes it great. I appreciate that. I I make mistakes on a minute-by-minute basis, man. Yes, that is a strong suit of mine as well. (laughs) (laughs) And people still still tend to like and love us, Tim, right? Our family hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, Yeah, it's out for debate still. (laughs) Hey, um, bring us up to speed with the critical area ordinance. How, How are we looking right now? How are we looking? I think we're looking fairly contentious, my friend. I, I would say, I would say, if there's one issue that has um, that has sparked more controversy and um, divisiveness in our community, it's been the the CAO. And are you guys still in litigation about that? We are, we are. So you know, I can't go into you know specifics on the city's stance right now. Hey, um, nobody's listening. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, we we have a number a number of lawsuits have been filed against the city. Um, 
and they range everywhere from you know violations of the uh, the takings clause in the Constitution um, to uh, focusing on our best available science argument, which was the foundation um, that the city used for the aquifer recharge protection area. Um, you know what I, I look at, and I think even the opponents of the CAO will look at the look at the outcomes of it, right? And the outcome is to ensure that we have enough um, that we have enough um, critical ground cover and um, water in our aquifers for hundreds and hundreds of years to come, right? That's that's the kind of the end state and the goal. the The issue is, I think, the broad blanket approach in which the CAO is applied. You know, to more than ninety percent of the island, um, I think the CAO has been misinterpreted by many. I think the the notion that all properties are, um, you know, sixty five percent of all properties are are hands off is not the case. But the fact that there is so much uh, disagreement and consternation and confusion, uh, that is one of the reasons why I, I couldn't vote for it. You know, if I can't understand something, I'm not going to vote for it, and I could not understand. Um, the CAO and how it would be applied to me, All right? So if I looked at my 1.8 acre parcel and I said, "Look, I want to do, uh, you know, add an ADU to the back," like I, I should be able to go into our code or have like a five minute conversation with one of our um, uh, planning department folks and understand what I can do. That is not the case right now. So I think there is a there is a time element cost that I I believe that property owners and islanders are finding frustrating. Um, and then there is just purely the the written code confusion cost, which is causing a lot of heartburn. Yeah, I think a, a big argument that I can get behind too is if you can only develop X amount of your property, let's say 35% and you have to leave 65% natural vegetation for this CAO, why am I getting taxed on 100% of my property if I'm not using 100% of my property? Sure, and I and and you know I I think that's the wrong argument for folks to take um, because you still have a reasonable use of your property. I I get where they're coming from, um, and even if the CAO wasn't written in the same the same manner in which it is now um, there's always no matter where you live there is always an element of um, uh, what you can and cannot do with your property uh, we have chosen on Bainbridge to go a step further than most have um, and it doesn't mean that you can't develop on your property it just means that you need to show uh, no net loss and you know I think that that can be a difficult confusing thing uh, for some uh, but I, I go back to him to you know, this was week, maybe week six, um, that myself and council members Nassar and Dietz um, had taken our seats, and this was brought up for a vote. And you know, number one, I wasn't ready, and number two, I felt that we just didn't do proper community outreach. Uh, when they passed the the CAO is a state man. Everyone, every community has a CAO, um, and it has to be renewed and relooked at. I think every ten years. So when they did it in two thousand eight, they they sent mailings around. They sent flyers to people's homes saying, look, this is what we're going to do. This wasn't done this time. And that concerns me. And it concerns me when they say, uh, when proponents say that it would have been too expensive and taken too much time. Well, I think litigation is expensive. And I think there is, again, there is a time value that people are spending on this that is, that is creating more confusion than just doing community outreach on the, on the, out, in the beginning. Yeah. It, 
the one thing I feel like this podcast has to offer this community is a conversation about what's happening. And a couple conversations have been sparked by me just listening to people and seeing their outrage and shock over certain things like the CAO. But moreover, you know, the development on Madison and the massive clear cut, the massive clear cut on sands that became agricultural property that was just absolutely huge and shocking to look at. When we put in the STO trail, all those in the Visconti, is that how you say it? Visconti, yep. That property, the trees came down alongside the scenic highway, and that was shocking. And a lot of people didn't know that these developments had been in, in the works for years and years and years. So they're on their route, and they go buy a certain piece of property, and then all of a sudden there's 50 trees clear-cut. And it's absolutely shocking. Mm-hmm. I think the podcast and, and you taking the time to speak with me helps get more of that information out. Um, it's never enough, though. You know, yeah. and, that's, and that's what I've found, too. And I, you know, we, we hold you know, quarterly ward meetings now. Many, um, many council members have uh, office hours. You know, people call and ask me to meet for coffees. After we're done here, I'm going to you know, uh, someone's house and there's going to be 10 folks there and we're having a a coffee chat about what's going on. So I'm always happy to do that. I think the I think the problem is um, you know the examples that you mentioned around clear cutting of lots and around development that I think a lot of us find is not in keeping with where we want to see the island go. Yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to see D.R. Horton right, developments in here. Right. So, I mean, that that was you know that was one of the reasons why we have the moratorium in place so we can take a pause on that type of development and get our uh, our new subdivision guidelines in place. Why we can um, get a um, you know more affordable housing ordinances on the books. We're doing a study right now on inclusionary zoning, which could allow for more affordable housing in developments, um, and then design guidelines. So, you know, if we if we do have, you know, a subdivision or a townhome development in the, you know, the Winslow Town Center, you know, uh, there should be community community consensus from our design review board, which is made up of community members on how that should look and how that should conform to um, to standards that we feel are appropriate for the island. Okay, let's get into the police station and the police. Sure. A thought just came to my mind. Mm-hmm. If they're now going, well, we don't know if they're going to move, but eventually when they move mm-hmm. out of that little, uh, whatever Donald Trump called other countries of a building, wouldn't that parking lot be a prime spot for low-income housing, right where the police station sits now? But- that's a that's an awesome point, Tim. That that whole area, and it's got a special city designation name to it. It's the the ferry, the ferry landing development zone, something very bureaucratic. But yeah, I mean, then the, we'll have we'll have to have a community discussion as to what we want to do with that that property and the parking that is kind of that is adjacent to the police station as well too. Um, so yeah, I mean, we we could look at you know developing um, low income and affordable housing there. I mean, you yeah. talk about. You talk about convenience to you know major transportation routes and the ferry and access to Seattle. That could be one option. But we would, as we we spoke earlier in the podcast about the island sub area planning committee, we'd probably do another citizen led committee that would bring back some options and they would do a study and they would solicit input from the community as well. So last week, did um, Harrison accept 
the bid that you guys put in for the new property uh, right across from the studio here, actually. That's right. That's right. Yep. So uh, last week we voted uh, four to three uh, to um, authorize our city manager to sign a letter of intent with Harrison to enter into um, uh, a purchase agreement. So uh, we should be hearing back, I would say, probably within a week as to what the next steps are. And um, I think we're all feeling pretty good that you know that'll be accepted for the price uh, $8.9 million to purchase the land and the building. Uh, and then after that, we move on to a purchase and sale agreement. So that will come back again before council well, and a vote. Won't it have to be retrofitted some too? And where's that money come from? Yep. So that's a great question. So the uh, the 8.9 is purely for the purchase of the building and the land. Um, and all of this, by the way, just so everyone listening knows, in the 2019 and 2020 budget, we have factored in um, a budget for the police building. We've been saving up. The city's been saving up our uh, general fund reserves. And we have, um, uh, I would say, an appropriate uh, low level of uh, city debt to go to the market and uh, and finance the rest. So the idea would be what we've budgeted for 2019 and 2020 is 10 million for the purchase of the land and then an additional 10 million for the retrofit. So we'll buy the land probably with general fund reserves for about 8.9 and then we can use uh, some general fund dollars and then go in what's called a sorry to get geeky here. It's called a councilmanic bond. And the council votes to go to the debt market and to secure financing to finance the remaining amount, which we anticipate about to be about nine to ten million to retrofit the building. Nice. Yeah. So, how long does it take to conclude this transaction? You think? Wow. And you know, when, I, when will the police be in there? So, without without stepping on my feet here and and speculating, um, stepping it, on your feet. How do you do that? Uh, <laughs> If anyone's seen me walk before, my wife can attest to the fact that I'm probably the biggest klutz out there. Um, so if anyone can do it, Tim, it's me. Um, the hope would be um, by fall of 2020 to get the police. Wow, that's pretty quick. I, you know, knock on wood or particle board. I, I think that that'd be the goal. Why'd you just hit me on the head? Sorry, man. Sorry. <laughs> it was the only real looking piece of wood in the uh, in the studio here. <laughs> no transact er, transition from that joke for me. Um, <laughs> Chief Hammer left last day yesterday, day before maybe. Uh, I, I believe today. Um, thanks for coming into the podcast and returning my email. You didn't do either. <laughs> Say love V. Tell me about the new police chief. Yeah, so the the new police chief is um you know it's unknown at the time. Uh, Deputy Chief Horn is going to uh, step in on an interim uh, interim basis. And he's uh, a local, right? Yeah, yeah he's, he's local here um, on the island. Um, Chief Hamner actually brought him in from the Indianapolis uh, Police Department when he took over. Uh, but Deputy Chief is... Um, so the, the way, just so everyone understands, the way it works, the city council, um, we hire um, our city manager, Morgan Smith. Uh, Morgan then is charged with hiring her department heads, of which the police chief is one. Uh, the police chief obviously has a higher and more visible role in the community than than the other department heads. Mm -hmm. So I think there's certainly an interest from council that we um, that we do the right thing on this. But but it's really the city manager's job to hire. Uh, but for right now, um, Deputy Chief Horn is stepping into that role, and he's a he's a great guy who follows the I would say the empathetic policing style that uh, Chief Hamner has brought to the island. 
Uh, we're sorry to see uh, Chief go. Um, you know, we wish him nothing but the best for his, uh, you know, next stage of his career down in uh, in Banning. Um, but I, I feel good that the department is in a is in a good state. They've got a, you know, they're well well respected around the community. We're getting them a new station. They've got two new officers that we budgeted, uh, and that's going to be huge to round out their um, to round out their rotational schedule. Is there any criticism of him? You know, asking for more money, getting a new contract, getting a police station, getting a higher budget, and then taking off and leaving us in the dust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure people have you know can form their own opinions or or be critical of of the chief, but um, I think what you have to look at is you know he's got to do what's right for him. Yeah, but he's he has got a personal to, choice, and he's got to do what's right for his uh, for his family. So I, I don't I, I don't begrudge him. Uh, you know, any I do I wish that he stayed? Absolutely. Absolutely, I, I think he was right for this community, uh, and I'll, I'll personally, you know, miss him and his leadership. Um, but you know, you get to a certain point in your career, and you've got to do what you got to do. The on the bright side, and I, I hope everyone knows this: we're in a really good position right now. Like we are, we are an attractive, we are in an attractive place for a police chief to come from elsewhere to come in. Um, I hope Deputy Chief Horn puts his name forward. I think he'd be a tremendous. Um, police chief. So I, I hope he puts his name forward if it uh, if it goes that way. But I think everyone should feel really good about the fact that we're going to be able to attract and retain good talent. Good. Shout out to the police. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. Hey, the, the non-motorized levy failed last time and looks like you guys are rewriting that. And uh, the STO trail is now up and, and moving. How do you think that turned out, the STO trail? And is there more plans to extend that and what does the new levy look like are you going to continue to pursue that non-motorized type what do you call it levy it was a levy yeah it was a levy yeah yeah no that was it was disappointing that it failed um i i think i was you know you talk about learnings and eating some humble pie um tim i i think the no i didn't what's that (laughs) (laughs) you edited that part out right uh, no, I, uh, look, I, I think, I think we missed the mark on it and, you know, council, council member Blossom, I think predicted the outcome fairly, fairly well. Uh, I think there was, there was certainly a lack of specificity that, um, voters were looking for, but also too, in, in stepping back and looking at it, I think we, I think we were too, um, narrow in its application, right? I think shoulder lanes and bike lanes, uh, you know, fixing sidewalks in Winslow are those are all really important things. Uh, but I I feel like we probably should have considered a more broad approach that recognize the fact that not everyone is going to get on a bike, um, or not everyone lives in the Winslow Town Center and avails themselves of the sidewalk infrastructure. That we've got to look more broadly at. Um, and I'll geek out on the the phrase, but multimodal, right? So we need to look at, you know, bikes, at walking, at our um, mass transit infrastructure more broadly. So uh, to say that we're going back out to ask voters um, in November or in November of 2020 for um, to vote on a levy is probably not. That's not written yet. What we're doing is we're going to take a more a broad approach looking at what we're calling now sustainable transportation. And that's exactly what I just outlined, which is looking at how everything all connects together, right? Our existing road infrastructure, 
our um, our small trail infrastructure, looking at how uh, Kitsap Transit and BI Ride factor into this, uh, and and how the STO factors in. Right, we've got a mile plus of STO trail going up 305 now. I mean, that's aside from being a, a concrete palace on the right hand side of the road. <laughs> there, um, it doesn't really serve much um, much of anything right now. Could it be something bigger? Absolutely, but we just don't know what that could be. And we've got to really get community buy-in for all of this. Um, and I should also mention too that it goes it goes beyond just those those areas um, that I discussed. One of the things that I wanted put into this sustainable transportation plan is looking at um, the next you know ten, twenty, thirty years. Um, looking at how autonomous vehicles are going to play a role, looking at uh, how car sharing could play a huge role as as people start ditching their cars, um, and then looking at how you know um, uh, how rideshare could really revolutionize how we um, how we commute around the island in Kitsap County, and there's a and there's a role for the government to play in that. Um, so I'm I'm excited about where we're heading with this. I think it's going to have a much broader appeal to all different constituencies on the island and not just be focused or feel like it's focused on those that ride their bike to and from the ferry or those that have the 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 means and the mobility to do that because not everyone does. We're we're still an island of 30% of the folks are over the age of 65 and we need to I think we need to be wise to that idea. Now, bicycle share and ride share programs have been around for a long time and they've had mixed success. We're on an island that's about 11 miles long, and I noticed that a big grip of money was going to go towards marketing the BI rideshare. Um, why do we have to spend so much money to tell people that there's this service that really is a great service, but it's not used? It, it, if it's my business plan, I'm losing hundreds of thousands of dollars on that all the time. And why do we need to have uh, a communal rideshare to get to the ferry? You know, when we have a couple buses that we could extend it under the same context, why do we have to have this subsection of transportation like that? Go yeah, ahead. no, it, it's a great question, and, and just just to make sure that we're we're talking about the same thing. So the the extra hundred thousand that will be spent on BI ride, this is separate from the the motorized levy. This was right. a result of a increase locally in ten dollar a year, ten dollar a year increase in car tab fees. Excuse me. Yeah, let's get into that too. Yeah, so it's a ten dollar increase on car tab fees locally here um, on the island, um, which would generate an additional roughly two hundred thousand dollars a year um, in revenue. 100,000 would focus on BI Ride, and you're right. So BI Ride was created between originally between the Chamber of Commerce um, and I believe Kitsap Transit as kind of more of a tourist-oriented um, service. But it morphed after the commerce the Chamber of Commerce got out of it. It morphed more into a City of Bainbridge Kitsap Transit effort um, to provide um, – uh, to provide kind of a bridge between the morning and the afternoon evening service um, for our uh, our normal Kitsap Transit bus routes, and the idea was that it would be less tourist oriented and more focused on getting folks to the ferry and getting folks to other parts of the island. And it's a fantastic service if you haven't used it. It's you know you, they'll come to your door if you call them with enough lead time. They have uh, pre predetermined stops that they make. But you brought up the you brought up the point, Tim, that not many people know about it, or they don't know how to use it, or they don't know, um, you know, they don't know, uh, you know, how to 
um, you know, where to pick it up. And I think that's an issue. Part of the deal between Kitsap Transit and, and Bainbridge Island was that Bainbridge Island was supposed to do the marketing for this. We were supposed to get the word out and engage the public. Um, and I don't think it, it goes just beyond marketing collateral and social media. Uh, we can use this hundred thousand dollars to get people excited about it by, you know, subsidizing rides or offering free rides for youth under eighteen or for seniors over sixty-five. Um, and I want to stress that it doesn't have to be just about going to the ferry. This can be about, you know, someone who you know doesn't have a car. Uh, that wants to get a safe way to get their groceries and have a reliable means of doing so. But Safeway delivers. <laughs> For a bit of an extra cost, though, too, right? Yeah, but here's here's my frustration. Sure. There's, that money goes into advertising, $100,000. Not just advertising. Well, marketing. Sure. Which is advertising. <laughs> so I know last go-around, this guy got a grant to help market it. I think it was a grant, and his solution was to tie balloons to the bus stop, and he's still doing it. And I think he got paid for 10 years to tie balloons every three months. You go on 305 after you leave here. I've seen the, no, I've seen the balloons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's getting paid to do that, and okay. that's ridiculous in my mind. And, oh, hey, we're talking. Um. I don't want to continue to have property tax for this, 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 and this. Uh, it seems like property taxes pay for the majority of, of improvements around here on this island. And when you talk about $100,000 to market a rideshare program that I don't really use, I appreciate it, uh, but it's a lost leader in my mind. Like, well, we're not we're not running we're not running. What are the numbers? How many people are using that right chair? Yeah, you know it's it's not it's not enough, and that's and that's part of the problem. It's not enough. I mean, it's it's in the hundreds per week. Um, so it and, seems like you you got a fire and you're just throwing money on it to continue to burn, and it burns quickly. But I I feel I feel like locally we haven't thrown money on it. We don't Kitsap Transit pays for this service. And you could argue by virtue of being part of the Kitsap Transit jurisdiction that we do indeed pay for that service, which is true. I, I feel like if we want to talk, and it goes back to our conversation before, if we want to walk the walk on climate change and reducing emissions, mm -hmm. what can we do locally? One thing we can do locally is stop single or reduce single vehicle trips, right? We can get people using mass transit, like a BI ride, like our Kitsap Transit. So one of the benefits of, you know, Kitsap Transit is going to be, I believe, expanding weekend service as part of um, uh, their expansion efforts, which is great. Uh, but if you come back from Seattle, if you're coming back from the airport, or if you're working a job in Seattle and you're coming back after, I think it's the 810 boat, you have no means of getting back. So again, mm -hmm. thinking holistically about transportation here, what if we had smaller rideshare services or last mile home services that ensure if you come off that ferry, you're insured of a public, a publicly supported ride home or a publicly subsidized ride home? And I think those are the things that not only increase quality of life for everyone, they offer expanded job opportunities and I think flexibility uh, for lower wage workers. And it also addresses that critical environmental need that you were speaking about. We, our biggest contributor to pollution here on the island is vehicles. It's vehicle congestion and single occupancy vehicles. $100,000, I'm in full agreement. I sponsored the thing. It's not gonna go a long way, but it's a step in the right direction. 
Um, and I and I feel you on the property tax and the tax malaise in general. Um, one of the the city is investigating how we can create a um, a reimbursement program though for low income workers or for low income uh, residents. So uh, they bring in their proof of uh, low income status through um, you know subsidies that they get off of their utility bill. Um, then we'd be able to provide some sort of reimbursement. So we're trying to figure out that mechanism too. But it's something that I'm cognizant of and aware of and want to certainly want to figure out how we can address too. Seems to be more and more homeless talk here in Seattle and in, in Kitsap County. And I know people talk openly on the island about the homeless people here, and we don't have a plethora. We have people that are stuck transitionally for sure. And then we, we have a few encampments. How do you see the homelessness going here on the island and what what are we as a city council and citizens going to do to help this situation? Because it, it seems to be in our face when we get off the ferry on both sides now and it seems to be growing, not not getting getting better. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is growing and I think it's only gonna you know, no matter I don't think folks are gonna like to hear this, but I think we'll we'll probably see uh, more homeless, visibly homeless individuals here on the island, um, and that's disconcerting. And I, you know, we could, you know, we could talk for a long time about why that is, and you know, just how income inequality has in our country and here in our state has made that so. Um, realistically, here on Bainbridge, um, well, yeah, like housing equality is is non-existent. A- here. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I feel so passionately about Suzuki and and making sure we do right on this affordable housing task force report that we have in front of us, because there's a lot of things that we can do to change our code um, to build or, or to ensure that we have the ability for uh, lower income or more affordable ranges of housing. But on the homeless side, though, Tim, I think there's there's visibly homeless, which we see on uh, the camps on 305 and, and high school. Uh, and then I think we have uh, more of the hidden homeless. And, mm-hmm. you know, be great if you had um, uh, the Helpline House folks and HRB, Housing Resources Bainbridge, on your podcast to talk about this. Because the numbers are, are startling. Uh, you know, while I think we have in the, in the homeless camps along 305, um, maybe let's call it charitably between, you know, 12 to 20 folks that live there. Um, and those camps are growing. Uh, I was down there a couple weekends ago and, you know, the individuals there, uh, a handful that I spoke with, they would, they would like to get out of their situation. There are some that freely choose to live there. Yeah. I don't think we as a community, I personally don't find that morally acceptable that we have a, that we don't have a solution, right? That we don't have an option, um, for them right now. The option right now that we have is it, we're fortunate to have Helpline House that has social workers and housing experts that can try to place them in other um, uh, transitional housing across the county, but we have nothing here on Bainbridge. So one thing that I've been speaking about with another member of council is looking at, and it's the first time I've spoken about it publicly, so here we go. We'll see how how this goes down. Only on the bystander. Only on the bystander for you, Tim. Uh, looking at uh, city surplus property uh, near downtown um, to look at putting um, small transitional homeless housing on. Um, we've got a great company, Blackmouth Design here, that does geodesic domes. What if we put a couple of those domes and some showers and some bathroom facilities on there um, to ensure that during a day, 
<laughs> day like this that we're we're going to have for the next few days, a very snowy, cold, wet weekend, um, that there are opportunities for folks to get out of the elements. Um, I, I think that's going to require a lot of community engagement and input, but I, I feel like we're falling down in this respect, and, and we, have, we have the means and the opportunity and the availability to do something, and we should. Yeah, if you have space to... To spare, you know, maybe this weekend, since we're having Snowmageddon 2019, it might be a good time to just offer up a garage or a mother-in-law space to someone and and see if they're willing to take it up. And and maybe that's a a turning point for somebody that's really suffering now. I I know we think about stuff like this on the holidays, but homelessness is 365 days a year for sure. I think that that's such a good point. And I'll put another plug for um, Housing Resources Bainbridge. They have a home share program where homeowners on Bainbridge can tell them that, look, we've got a, a spare room or a spare mother-in-law ADU um, that can be used. And individuals that are struggling with, with housing or transition can go to HRB and put their names on a list. So, you know, if, if more of us did that, I, I, I agree. I think we could we could probably – we could provide that – that bit of need uh, for someone that is struggling. Yeah, Kitsap Housing Resources came on, and so did Helpline. And one thing that I, I like, they had a resource book. I think they called it the Blue Book. Mm-hmm. And it was a book that you just handed out to homeless people saying, here's as many resources close to you yep. geographically as possible. Right. And that, that's, a, that's a great idea and a great thing to do. And, and so just on that, too, I mean, our, our police officers this weekend <clears throat> and our um, our new city emergency uh, manager, um, you know, they will be paying special attention to folks that are um, that are vulnerable populations like our homeless, ensuring that they have what they need um, to ride out the next few days. So that I feel like our city does a a good job, and our our first responders and uh, our police do a great job of of providing that kind of that touch and that critical care. So just so folks understand and know that that's being addressed. Who, who's, you said emergency service manager? Yeah. So who is that and yeah. where's that located and yeah, what so do the, they do? Yeah. So the new emergency manager um, uh, was just brought on full time uh, in January and she reports directly to the deputy city manager. And uh, her name is Anne. She comes from, uh, I believe, uh, Berkeley, California. She was running emergency management for a very large college uh, system down there. But she is she is tasked with um, building, as as we call it, community resilience in the face of emergency. So whether it's preparing for um, for earthquakes or preparing for you know massive power outages, you know she's working with um, you know not for profit groups and. The um, the fire department to ensure that we're ready to to endure whatever's thrown at us. Oh, I'd like to talk to her someday. Absolutely, Sounds like an interesting job. Yep. Um, you you just helped uh, form the race equity task force, and some people were just picked to be on that task force. What is their responsibility going to look like? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I'm glad you brought it up. The so the race equity task force was formed uh, after a business meeting that we had in um, October of 2018, and we had maybe 15 uh, concerned citizens show up to public comment that night. They shared with us their collective experiences of being um, uh, being a minority on the island, being from a community of color on Bainbridge Island, and uh, 
discrimination that they felt, microaggressions that occur, uh, and it was it was an eye opener, I think, for for all of us on council. Yeah, and, learning about microaggressions because I've been participating in, in this group and the Ren group. It's just like little things, little needles, or little notches that are just shooting down, you know, your character. Right. And and it's things that are so overlooked by people. Just maybe the way you make eye contact, your body language, put your hand on your wallet, something. And those microaggressions are picked up. They are. Big time. They are. And listening to some of the stories about how they affect some of the people in my community, it was heartbreaking. And I, I think you, you hit the nail on that. Heartbreaking is is the word. And and I think that, you know, the vast majority of us believe, not the vast majority. That's the wrong way to say. It. I, I you know I think there is perception here that we live in a bubble and that we everyone is of a certain income or more and lives a certain lifestyle or better. And that's just a that's a fallacy. And goddamn uh, John Travolta, <laughs> boy and, in the bubble. That's right. And I I think it's um. For me, it was it was wanting to learn more, uh, and a couple of us council members met with um, uh, a subset of the the public that came that night, and we talked about what what could the city do, how could we how could we help kind of raise a dialogue and and uh, and work with them to figure out a a plan, uh, and what came out of it was this notion of creating a uh, six month task force, bringing members of the public in. Uh, to sit down and to think through how can the city lead um, in this area and how can the city start making uh, some changes to, I think, break down some of the the institutional um, systems of racism and inequality that exist. So we put out an application or a, a call for applications. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure if we're not fact checking, don't hold me to it. But I, I think it's probably the most applications we've ever received for a task force. Received 28, and we had seven spots. <laughs> so for three days, uh, myself, council members, Dietz, and Nassar, we sat for three hours for three days, so nine hours in total, and interviewed these folks. And it was it was amazing. And I wish we could have figured out a way to invite all of them to participate on the task force. Um, but we have we have... I think we've got a nice mixture of folks representing communities of color, representing different income levels, different walks of life. Um, and their goal is going to be, it's going to be citizen driven. You know, We act as liaisons to these task force. This is going to be citizen driven. They're going to come up with a plan that they'll then present to city council uh, probably halfway through and then at the end to say, look, this is what we recommend steps that should be taken. And then we can extend this task force too. We can make it a permanent standing committee that advises council on matters of inequality and race equity. And I, I think it's going to be an amazing process. And I invite, just because these seven were chosen, it does not mean this is open to the public the first Thursday of every month starting in March. And I invite members of the public to come and participate um, and listen. And Will I think that be in chambers? I, it will be in chambers or will be in the map room at City Hall. It really depends on where our uh, our lovely staff can find open space because we've got a lot going on. But it will be at City Hall, though, for sure. Yeah, I went to a meeting with Ren at uh, Islandwood, and there was probably 35 people, and we were stuffed in a small room. And... I, I think it's great. I, I think one of the byproducts coming out of this, Tim, is going to be – Discussion. Uh, it's going to be discussion, but not only that. It's going to be – we had – I would say out of the 28 applicants, we had 25 who had never, ever participated in their local government before. 
So now we have 25 individuals that want to engage. And you know, I'll put in a plug. It's 2019. That means we've got four uh, four seats up for uh, up for grabs in the election in the city council election. Um, I'd love to see some of these young women and young men um, dive in and put their name in the hat, pay their hundred dollar filing fee, and run for council. You know, North South Central Ward, they're all up, and then the uh, the at large seat is up too. So I, I I'm excited. I, I think there's a lot of great. Um, second and third order effects that are going to occur because of these citizens standing up. What other task forces um, do we have going on in our community? Sure. So we have we have quite a bit. We have quite a few. We have a uh, planning commission that um, that advises council on um, building regulations, building codes, and design. A design review board actually that focuses on um, uh, uh, subdivision and housing and multi-use design. Um, we have a non-motorized, what's actually a multimodal transportation uh, committee. We have a climate change advisory committee that advises the city on actions that we can take locally. Uh, like get rid of the people? Getting rid of the people would be would probably be the best way, although that would have some other nasty effects to it. Uh, we yeah. we might not have a choice here yeah. soon. But the best way the best way for folks to know what's going on, pay attention to the papers, look at the website. You'll see if we have openings um, on the uh, on any of these committees, and anyone is free to apply. Um, I, I believe we've got one seat open on the planning commission now. I could be wrong, uh, but always pay attention and check out the website. And uh, if you see something of interest, uh, you know. Let us know. And that goes for Kitsap County, too. We have a Human Rights Commission in Kitsap County and other county boards and uh, and task forces that citizens from Bainbridge can serve on and should serve on. Well, just know that I'm up for uh, tying balloons on the on the bus stops for 100000 a year. Uh, that, fantastic. I, I'm not sure we can guarantee you that much. Ride though. the bus, people. There we go. <laughs> I've already started. Excellent. Hey, um, it's you're a year deep. What? Have you learned? <laughs> <laughs> what have I learned? Wow. What what is what are the good and the bad takeaways from your first year in office? So, sitting sitting with you the first time in October of 2017, I I don't pre-council man. Yeah, I know pre pre-councilman. I I don't think I quite realized just how naive I was about <laughs> about the responsibility and the time commitment and the role. I mean, it is How many hours you put in a week? <sighs> It varies. I would say at least twenty, though, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. it really depends. But that goes up depending on how long of a, uh, a council meeting we have. To they're um, getting longer. Yeah. They, well, actually, you know what? They've gotten better. They've gotten better. We started out doing five and six hour marathon sessions, but uh, yeah, we, we went to one of those. I didn't like it. Yeah. No, they <laughs> they can get pretty tiring after ten o'clock. Our our attention span and our our level of aggression rises. But um, yeah. most island closes down at eight thirty, and you guys are still going. We're still going. I know. I know. We're we're unique. Um, most other city councils meet one or two times uh, a month. Um, part-time city councils that have a city manager. We're unique. We meet. We meet every week, and we have committees that we're all actively involved with. Um, but just getting back to your question, so I, I think the I think the one the one pos- the most positive thing is um, the ability to affect change. I, I I think if you are if you are looking. If you're interested in public service and you want to make change, um, running for office, winning helps, obviously. Uh, <laughs> winning and running for office, it, it helps because your ability to make changes is, is pretty profound. Um, and I would say it's 
it's like anything in life, Tim. The more effort you put in, and the more the more you get out of it. Um, so I feel like I've been able to do quite a bit in the past year, from you know passing the gender neutral ordinance um, to I know. I know you don't care for the car tab uh, raise, but I do think that, that I, don't, I don't mind it. It just yeah. it's just another pile on of uh, taxes. No, I, I and I hear you, but I, I think again the ability to tackle like a large issue like climate change or like transportation, you have that ability on council, and I think it's it's really empowering. And then and then just on a on a very micro level, just being able to pick up the phone or have a citizen pick up the phone and call you and say, "Look, um, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm struggling with uh, with housing right now. Can you help me find?" Um, a housing attorney, um, because my landlord is coming, you know, is is being, um, you know, unfair. So being able to hook them up with the right, uh, with the right resource, um, and and all the way down to, you know, people are speeding on my road. What can we do? Um, so that's a lot of fun. You the, publicly shame them on Facebook with their <sighs> license plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have a habit on the island of doing that, don't well, we? Well, thank goodness, because that's how we found the person that hit my car and oh. ran. Remember? Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember yeah. that. Well, I guess it can be used for good at sometimes, but you know, you know, social media can also be an ill. Um, I would say the one frustrating, the one frustrating piece for the past year has been, um, I think, the level of um, nastiness and discord um, in our community. But I think that's not just our community. I think it's more broadly speaking. Um, I think we. I think we're all too very. We're too quick to judge. We're too quick to. Um, to blame and get on yeah, one the another. MAGA hat and the Catholic boys from Kentucky. Yeah, that's an example of it right there. It, it is, and I, I think we, I think no matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, I think all of us deserve blame from rushing to judgment or not taking the time to, not taking the time to, uh, maybe step back, catch a breath, and investigate. Mm-hmm. And I've been guilty of this on the dais on council where I've, I think I've been too aggressive and flown off the handle, um, or been too passionate about something and maybe. It's the new. It's the New England in me, Tim. You can't take it out. I think, <laughs> but I. But I feel like I have gotten better in terms of um, keeping myself uh, maybe a little bit more um, aligned with a temperament that <laughs> that I should have. Yeah. 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 Shout but out. That's hard. Shout out to the Patriots. Oh, Good I'm, job. I, I won't even go there. <laughs> uh, at least Edelman got MVP. I, I like him. He's you a, know, he came back from he's a scrappy hardcore dude. Incredible yeah. injury last year. To, right. Right. To be a hundred percent. All oh, man. There you go. What's with that beard, though? Oh, his beard? Yeah. Uh, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm done with the like the baseball players having the mullet and the long beards. And... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure mullets ever deserve a place in uh, in professional sports, well, but uh, the triple, I, be, tri- having, a, having a modest beard myself, I've I've got beard envy. You know, <laughs> Ju- Julian Julian has a uh, has a solid uh, manicured beard. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like a caveman. He does. He does. A well paid sure. caveman. <laughs> Hey, uh, let's get heavy here as we wrap this up. Sure. Um, ethics. What's ethical? <laughs> um, yeah. We have, you know, multiple ethical charges up against council people. And are we still looking to solve this? Um, where where do we stand? Um, it seems to be much like everybody jumped into conclusions and the clickbait and the instant, uh, what do you call it, uh, Outrage once we see a title of a newspaper mm-hmm. or article and stuff like that. Where where we stand with ethics with this council and how to how can we improve it? Yeah, that's a that's a heavy question to end with. But um, 
but it's you know we we dealt with it uh we had a discussion on our study session last tuesday around broadly our ethics program um and uh, more specifically around ethics complaints against um one of our council members uh, council member peltier um and then we have other we have other ethics complaints actively um in front of our ethics board. And the ethics board, for those that don't know, is appointed by the city council. And they follow the uh, ethics program that is approved by the city council. They are they are your, as citizens, watchdog um, for um, ethics violations, which are uh, our, our Article 2 ethics violations are, you know, are state mandated. I mean, they are from the state. They are more in terms of looking at, um, you know, influence peddling and bribery and corruption, things of that nature. And then our Article 1 violations are more along their advisory opinions issued by the ethics board, more on the code of values and the code of conduct, right? How, how as elected officials, we we interact with the public and each other and comport ourselves. And unfortunately, we've had a handful of ethics complaints against members of our council um, over the past um, few months. And I'll be honest, it's a distraction. And, it, and I'm not saying it's a distraction that citizens have filed them. It's a distraction that um, uh, that members of our council have comported themselves in a way that is not um, uh, that is not uh, okay. Allegedly. <laughs> no, well, well, no. I mean, so I'll be. Let me be. Let me be very clear. You know, the the two the two findings that we dealt with last Tuesday um, dealt with Councilmember Peltier's treatment of um, uh, citizens during one during a council meeting, um, and then another in an email exchange. Uh, and the ethics board found that he did not handle himself in a way that um, befitted his title as an elected official. And I think if you play back and you watch the study session last week, I think a vast majority of us um, agreed with that. And I, but does know, Ron agree with it? Well, what I, what I was about to say is I, I I like Ron dearly as a person, and I think he's you know I think his he's got a passion for the community that you can't deny. Um, but he's in the wrong here. There's no other way to say it. Um, you know, I I asked if he would be contrite and offer an apology and. Um, but he won't do that. Uh, he feels that you know this is it's a political attack against him, and I I personally feel that's the wrong way to approach it. And I think this is it's not going to get better with that type of with that type of attitude. I mean, there there's a certain amount of of humble pie. I think you have to eat as an elected official, you know. And um, I'm not saying that as an elected official you have to stand there and and take verbal harassment or berating, um, but you do have to hold yourself to a higher standard. And that has not been done in this case. And um, yeah, it pains me to say that about a colleague. But again, I go back to why we're here. We're not here to spend hours at a study session or a business meeting um, talking about the 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 ethics or the decorum of a council member. Or the behavior. Or the behavior. Behavior. It's not necessary. And, and I get really frustrated and worked up at the fact that we are, we are taking that time to do that um, because this council member... Um, will not stop the behavior and will not own up to past behavior. And that's just, as time goes on and this continues, I just get, I get more and more frustrated. <laughs> cool. Let's, let's keep talking about yeah, it. Yeah, no, you know, it's... <laughs> now, he had those two that you feel like he's in the wrong. And then what was up with the speeding, uh, speed limit changing? And how did that go down? Yeah, so that, that was an Article 2 violation. And that, that dealt with um, a... Um, uh, a neighbor neighborhood, um, the Grow neighborhood, asking for their getting petitions and coming before council and working really for the past seven years or so to lower the speed on Grow. 
and the ethics complaint against Councilmember Peltier was focused on um, a comment that he made um, uh, to uh, the complainant who um, who felt that um, that Councilmember Peltier was um, leveraging his position as a council member um, to then lower uh, the speed on level a neighboring neighborhood and street uh, where Councilmember Peltier has a house. I, I think the the did, did the speed go down on level. The speed went down everywhere. The speed went down everywhere because the council, we passed um, an ordinance last year. We lowered uh, speeds in the Winslow core, I think, all down to 20. Um, we, uh, I think we, we found, we sent that back to the ethics board, um, that complaint for them to review and to provide more insight on. Because personally, I feel that doesn't quite meet the standard of an Article 2 violation, which is you know a material benefit gain, right? So all of the residents on that street would have gained. Um, would Councilmember Peltier have solely gained and profited off that? I find that hard to believe. But my my bigger issue with that whole with that whole complaint, Tim, was the fact that he again acted in a manner that was less than respectful toward a member yeah, of the his, public. His behavior and his communication was poor. And it's it's how you you have you have kids, right? You you tell your kid most of the time it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah. You right? know, and that he, applies to us adults too. He calls me out on it too, you right? Know, when he wants an apology from me, that's because our children are much smarter than we are. Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> we we're talking about math, you know, because got held up this morning. And God help us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, thank God my wife is so much smarter than I am because my my kids would have absolutely no at home help in mathematics. Shout out to both our wives, yeah, great thank, women. Thank goodness. Hey. um, so how many ethics charges have flown through council this first year that you've been here? So five or six? Yeah, no, it's so it's hard. Right now we've addressed uh we've addressed three, right? The two Article One complaints, which are again um advisory opinions that uh, a council member has not behaved in a way according to our values, and the other was an actual Article Two against Councilmember Peltier, which is on the um uh, an ethical violation. There are more, uh, and I won't. I won't say the number because I don't want to get this one wrong, Tim. There are more that are being addressed right now by the ethics committee, um, and I think there are maybe four or five or more sitting there that they're addressing um, on other members of the council. Um, and you know, I again, I, I don't want to until it comes before council and until the ethics board has put an opinion out or other bodies have put opinions out. Or ruled. I I don't want to speculate on the nature or the. You don't want to step on your feet again. I don't want to step <laughs> on my feet again, and that's just out of, that's out of respect for the complainant and the council member and the ethics board. I don't want to do anything that's untoward. So, there's the property um, ethics charges about Nassar's property, and that seems to be a quagmire, and it's tough because you can see what she's trying to do agriculturally mm-hmm. and to you know use her property the way she seems fit but yet we had the critical area ordinance and we have rules and regulations and it doesn't seem like in this situation that she's playing by the same rules as everybody else so there's a bunch of you know uprising about it I, I see an outhouse that she improved, and I don't really see the drama of the wetland situation or how that improvement, um, you know, hurts the environment in any any fashion. But this has become, you know, quite the show in the newspapers and stuff. How do you see that? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has become a, a show, a bit of a spectacle. And again, I... You know, and she's voting on land use issues while violating land issues allegedly on her own property. And, and people think that's very unfair. Um, is this this going to get resolved anytime soon? I, I hope so. I hope so. I, I think just going through this, you know, again, this is before the ethics board. Um, it's before the city. The city is is going to, you know, offer their insights on on her property and what needs to be done. And I believe before the county as well too. So again, I until as a as a as a governing body as a council, we don't deal in speculation. Um, we don't deal, and we have to to do anything. We have to be presented with with facts and rulings because otherwise we're we're jumping the gun. That being said, uh, perception-wise, and a uh, a lack of communication up until now on this has been, for me personally, very frustrating. Right, this has been going on since last January. Um, things to me, <laughs> things like that to me are they need to be brought into uh, the light, and folks need to know about them. Um, and I, I think a lot of the public outrage and the concern. And the newspaper articles would never have occurred if uh, if the rest of the council had been told that this was before um, that council member Nassar had uh, land use um, rulings before the city and potential um, complaints against her. There is a reason why at the beginning of every meeting we have a conflict of interest section. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just for us to say, look, I've got this ruling before the city or I've got X, Y, Z just to let you know. A good example is two examples for you. When we started talking about the moratorium, um, Councilmember Blossom um, stepped back from that discussion. Mm-hmm. She said she is not going to participate really the first eight months on any moratorium related discussions because she had a property in question that could have been impacted. Every time that we discuss the shoreline management master program, master plan, sorry, um, Councilmember Dietz, who has a property that is on the shoreline, is sure to mention how this would impact him. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is. Has she had a conflict of interest in voting on land issues while going through this ethical charge? I don't think there's a conflict of interest because I don't think there is. I don't think there is specifically anything that benefits her specifically. Right? There is no. There is no specific benefit to her in voting. We are all, as property owners, all seven of us on the council, we are all impacted. I'm impacted on my property by the CAO. Yeah, so none, you couldn't all recuse yourself. No, we couldn't all recuse ourselves. And, and the city attorney has told Rasham that she is free to vote on it. There's never going to be a revote. That's not how it works. That, that's not allowed for in in our, our legislation. And because the, she, the city attorney has told her that she can proceed, she could. I go back to the fact that it's it's awareness, right? It's getting in front of problems before they become problems, and it's being transparent mm-hmm. in what's going on, and and it's holding holding ourselves to that level of of um, scrutiny. That you know, we signed up to be elected officials. You've you've got to sometimes take the heat. So I, you know what, I, I think I think some of the criticism that uh, Councilmember Nassar has received has been um, has been unfair and unduly harsh. Um, but I also think that you know. I think it's a good lesson for us all that we need to we need to get out in front of this and talk about it a bit more in an open setting. So, okay, so sh- is it time to leave her alone? There's a th- there's a cause and effect. Uh, there's an ethics charge out there, and then there's a consequence for it. 
should should the paper and the people flying drones taking pictures of her property all, all should all that quit and should we say hey absolutely th- you should quit this I, is I, our, our council member this is our neighbor this is a person in our community we should let due process play out I, absolutely absolutely I, I there's that is absolutely the way it should go Tim. Um, I'm starting to shirts now. Free Rasham. Well, we have, you know, we have. We'll we'll know here in the coming months from the ethics board, from the city, and from Kitsap County what their determinations are with the property, and we'll address it. We'll address it then. Until now, you know, it's we can make we can make our own individual assumptions, but for now, it's it's speculation, and people are you know people are free to speculate how they want. I would encourage folks to reserve judgment. There's other issues that we can talk about of consequence that we can deal with now. So, all right, I got this radio show. You can uh, talk away. Awesome. Hey, um, let's lighten it up before we cut out of here. What's uh, what's playing in your car, in your headphones? In my headphones? Yeah, run what? the jewels. Run the jewels. Yep. What's that? Run the jewels. They're a uh, they're a hip hop group. Um, LP and Killer Mike. Uh, oh, I've been watching Killer Mike on uh, Netflix. Yeah, on Netflix. He's got a documentary series. Yeah. So I've got run the jewels, and then uh, I'm I'm a podcast fiend, and I'll I'll listen to anything on podcast, even that bystander. Yeah, which one do you like? <laughs> My favorite bystander episode. Yeah, you know what? I'm kind of partial to the. Uh, I, I like I like our mayor a lot, and I thought it was. Um, he's got such a cool background and such an interesting youth experience that I'm I'm glad he I'm glad he came on and shared that with you. I think everyone needs to know more about Cole. He's a good guy. Yeah, I was kind of joking around with him and then he just dropped a bomb in the first 10 minutes and exposed himself and i was just like wow yeah okay i gotta sit up straight yeah and uh listen to this guy yeah he's the real deal man i found him fascinating yeah very good guest um what are you watching on netflix man i'm in a i'm in a bit of a drought right now i think i've watched everything on netflix. Uh, you know and i i tend to go through these um these spells where you know we got game of thrones coming up here and i think Three months, which is exciting, but I'm I'm in a bit of a, a drought. I think I'm doing more reading than than watching right now. When I when I go into a, a Netflix or a watching drought, I tend to go back to my old favorites. So I'll I'll rewatch old episodes of Arrested Development or the English or American uh, Office. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, the English one's good. That's oh, fantastic. Uh, have you seen Ozark? I oh I have. Yeah, Ozark's Ozark's brilliant. Yeah, that's a yeah. good, good show. Yeah. Anything with Jason Bateman, I think, is, is pretty fantastic. Yeah, like the first two episodes, I didn't really get into it and didn't watch it. And then a year went by, and then I was just like a stuck. I couldn't turn oh, it yeah. off. Yeah, you got to power through that. Oh, uh, new podcast? You know any new podcasts? New podcast. So um, what I'm really liking right now is The Hive with Nick Bilton. The Hive. What's the Hive with Nick Bilton. I, I believe it's. Um, I think it's produced by Vanity Fair, but it's everything from uh, culture and current affairs to politics. But he gets some amazing guests on there, and it's on. I think it comes out every uh, every Friday. I got I got into some uh, crime ones lately. Uh, Doctor Death. <laughs> my my wife is a huge crime podcast fan. Doctor Death blew me away, and yeah. now I'm listening to the Happy Face Killer. Oh, I haven't I haven't heard that one. It's yet. A pretty good. Daughter of a serial killer retracing her youth and her dad's wow cycle i'm gonna write that one down i um she got me she got me listening to um case file and then uh what's the other one cold it's about cold cases so those are on my rotation now nice yeah all right well thanks for spending some time with me i wish you all the best and uh let's hit some coffee again minus the cashew milk you got it tim thank you for having me on Uh, My pleasure. You've been listening to The Bystander with Be Kind.